Welcome to the Emergency Traffic Podcast. Welcome to the Emergency Traffic Podcast, where we talk about line of duty deaths of firefighters and paramedics and try to learn from these tragic incidents so that we can uh, do better next time. This is one of our uh, tailboard talks. We haven't done one for a while. This will be tailboard, tailboard talk number 13. And this is simply where we get together and talk about current issues or issues that are on our mind. Uh, so uh, today we have uh, the whole gang. So myself, Paul, and we have uh, Doug and Dirk and Denny. So it's going to be a lively discussion. Um, and the subject is going to be the Baltimore recent memo that's been issued by the Baltimore Fire Department to try to provide guidance to their personnel after uh, another uh, li tragic line of duty death that occurred in October in a vacant row house. And this is uh, one of several. There was one in 2022 we did an episode on. There was one in 2014 where a safety officer died in a, in a vacant uh, house uh, post-fire almost. And then there was one where a recruit died in 2007 in a vacant row house that was being used as a acquired structure for live fire training. So we're going to talk about those. But first, How's everybody doing? What's new, Doug? Hey, Paul. I'm doing well. I mean, I'm looking forward to our talk here. We've already had our off-air talk, which got us fired up a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, it's good. Getting I put up some more Christmas decorations today, so we're getting that all almost done. And a couple of days off, back to work tomorrow. And yeah. Yeah, you're wearing some kind of Christmas shirt there. Christmas shirt. It's really yeah. comfy. That's why I put it on. My wife said, why are you wearing that shirt? It's not Christmas. You haven't even turned the Christmas light. Christmas lights on yet. I know, but it's really comfy and it's red and it's yeah. Friday. So. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. That's about all that's new with me. How about, uh, oh, uh, Denny's got a shirt with a blue nose or something on it. Being a true Lunenberger type fellow. Although you were born in, were you born in, in, in Louisburg? No, I was uh, actually born in the Northwest Territories. Oh, yes, that's right. Your father was working for the feds up in the north, right? right? Yeah, up on the dew line. Yeah, took your wife there and said, come with me. We're going to go on an adventure. His wife. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was an adventure, all right. Mosquitoes as big as airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> How are you today, sir? I'm, I'm fine, and I am wearing my Nova Scotia sweatshirt. And uh, yeah, it's starting to get a little wintry here. We're below zero at nights, and snow and slush and crap. And my siding contractor is finally showing up on Monday to do my siding repair. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. He says it's going to take 10 days or so. So I'm uh, going to put a big dumpster in my yard. I, ho I, I hope he's done soon because I got a. a we, we do something called the First Cousins where all of our our relations on a certain side of the family, you know, are all invited. And so we get uh, between 20 and 30 people coming over for a potluck dinner on, on uh, uh, first, second week in December. So we're hoping that, uh, you know, it'll be all good. So hopefully, hopefully my siding contractor is gone by then. Dirk, how are you? You've got a bit of a sore voice from uh, getting together with some of your crews. Yeah, I'm trying to hold back today. <laughs> no, I just feel a little bit under the weather, just a little head cold, kind of. And uh, yeah, going out uh, with my crew didn't really help. It was pretty 
noisy. We were watching the Oilers. Uh, got us pretty uh, upset. <laughs> and uh, so we had to speak up, and that wasn't good for my voice. So that, that, that's the, all. The Oilers make you drink more. Yes, but I, I couldn't, unfortunately, because I was driving. <laughs> but yeah, so a uh, little farewell there from my first crew that I was assigned to as a as an officer. So it was uh, it was pretty nice, and I'm looking forward to uh, the new platoon and the new station and new crews. And so it's uh, always always exciting to meet new people. <laughs> Talking about the Oilers. Well, that's not important. You can cut that out. <laughs> no, that stuff's good. Hey, how about the Alouettes pulling off a Grey Cup victory? Woohoo! Yay! Grey Cup seconds to go. Grey Cup. <laughs> yeah. Call it Hail Mary. <laughs> I, I, it was apparently we missed the last half. I didn't get to watch it, but uh... oh, I saw it on replay. It was incredible. Nice, yeah, nice. I had I had the game on in the background, kind of thing, and saw the end drive, the end plays. So what I was. I mean, I didn't really care, but if somebody had to win, I was happy Montreal did because they have the Eskimos old coach. I like it. Well, and I was in Saskatchewan this week and visiting with my friends there, and they said they were all cheering for Montreal. And I said, what? And they're going, well, yeah, because our quarterback was there and our, our defensive end coach is the coach well, or something. And... That's, Saskatchewan and Winnipeg, I think, is a big rivalry. Team. Right. Yeah, and they said we can't we can't cheer for Winnipeg. Yeah. So. It's like no, Edmonton Oilers fans, it's – ABC, right? Anybody but Calgary. <laughs> yep. What's the football team called again in Edmonton? Okay. Know, the Elks. All right. Elks. <laughs> All right. So, uh, the uh, fire department of Baltimore, Baltimore City Fire Department, issued a memo um, recently, November 1st. Actually, they issued one November or October 23rd or something, and then they changed it, and they issued a memo October 1st about a November 1st um, November 1st about well-involved structure fires and procedures to follow this caused uh, quite a bit of discussion around North America and within our little uh, little podcast group here and so we thought we should do a tailboard talk about it part of the reasoning behind of course the issuance of this memo in my opinion is uh, they lost, they recently had a fire in, in October uh, of 2023, where one firefighter uh, died uh, in a, a vacant row house fire and several other firefighters were uh, were injured. It was quick. I just listened to the audio today. It was like three minutes in or something that uh, this firefighter had a mayday. And then, of course, last year in January of 2022, uh, they lost uh, uh, several firefighters at four Two, two, two firefighters and several injured at Stricker Street fire. And then in 2014, they actually lost a safety officer uh, who went in, who was alone, went in post-fire into the building uh, in 2014. He walked in the back door. He had not been informed that the floor had been removed previous to the fire in the building uh, and walked in, fell in the basement, was alone died in the basement uh no one else checked on him all units left scene he was still there and it was actually the people in the area called in and said hey there's a fire truck sitting on the street here a command you know a pickup or suv uh we're kind of wondering is the guy still here and they came back and found found this per safety officer deceased in the basement 
2014. And in 2007, they were using a, a house, an abandoned uh, row house for training and a recruit died during that training evolution. And there was numerous issues uh, around that. Um, there was a perception that they were trying to fail the recruit uh, due to fitness issues, maybe. Uh, the, but the house itself uh, had walls, holes in the walls. It had that Excelsior, which we encountered on another call, Denny. I think you looked it up, which is like a, a, a fabric or a, a kind of a wood, almost like wood chips or something. Shavings. More like shavings. And it was, the house was full of it and they had holes in the walls and the fire, they lit multiple fires in the building. The recruits were told to go in and attack. We'll do an episode on it, but the recruits were told to go up on the third floor, pass the, go above the fire, pass the other fires to suppress the fire on the third floor. And then the building got going, which wasn't the intent. Um, and uh, they couldn't control it. They had inadequate water supplies. They say the training guys didn't have communications. The training guys didn't have 1041 level one certifications. The training guys, uh, they, they didn't have control where people were. And the recruits turnout pants were over 10 years old and poorly repaired. And she suffered burns and subsequently died. I believe there's a lawsuit and it was settled for a couple hundred thousand dollars um, over that fire. So anyway, there's been this repeated uh, row house fatalities in Baltimore, uh, which, of course, the Stricker Street one was the biggest one. And um, so that's why we wanted to talk about uh, this, this memo. Okay, so the original memo, October 31st, 2021 was uh, th that units arriving on scene of a well-involved structure fire, whether occupied or vacant, will only initiate an exterior attack with hand lines and or apparatus-mounted master stream appliances. Exterior attack will be in place until directed to do so otherwise by the first arriving battalion chief. As an interior attack can commence, on a confirmed occupied dwellings after the following has taken place. A significant knockdown of visible fire that was showing upon arrival, a complete 360 evaluation or side Charlie for row houses, along with a conducted update from the roof if possible. The first, first um, arriving battalion chief has done a comprehensive risk reward analysis. First arriving battalion chief deems the structure is sound for members to operate safely inside. Confirmed vacant structures with a weather code x-ray, which is the sign program that Baltimore had started years ago that would identify uh, abandoned structures, although they were way behind and hadn't, hadn't continued. I think they've continued again now. Will not continue to be extinguished from the exterior unless directed to, or not, will continue to be extinguished from the exterior unless directed to otherwise by the on-scene battalion chief. The only time the above directive will be deviated from is when there is an actual sighting of a trapped individual by on-scene personnel and conditions dictate the rescue can be effected safely without causing injury or worse to departmental personnel. Emphasis placed on identifying and communicating the structure's status as early in the incident as possible. If both battalion chiefs have delayed responses, the first dispatch chief will then designate, if possible, a senior officer to be in charge. In summary, that was the first memo. And I mean, they've lost 
several firefighters over the past 10 years in vacant or abandoned row houses and a lot there's been a lot of questions in mind as to why why they're in there if they're vacant and are, they're not safe these these buildings are decrepit and they're and they're being injured by the products of combustion uh, i know i listened to the audio on the fire in october and it sounds like they had a huge blaze like they were asking uh, engines i want all your discharges flowing uh, you know, uh, several times they said that. So, so I, I'm guessing that's where this comes from. My issue with this whole memo and what you're saying is, in my opinion, a, a building being quote unquote vacant should not be a determining factor on your operations. A building being structurally unsound on 100% should be a determining factor on your operations. But we all know in big cities, vacant buildings are occupied by somebody. And vacant buildings don't just start on fire by themselves because there's no utilities to them. There's nothing being fed. There's no electricity. There's nothing that would just happen to start on fire. They're often caused by a human element, which means if there's a vacant building on fire, there was probably at least at one time recently a person in there. So if you're coming to a vacant fire that is from your training as a fire officer, structurally sound enough to make an interior attack based on what you see with the building and what the fire conditions are and all that, then you should be going in to do your fire attack and your search and rescue. Vacant or not vacant, a building that appears to be well involved in heavy fire that you can't go into or structurally unsound, you shouldn't go into that if it's occupied or not. It doesn't matter. In my opinion, it doesn't matter if the building is vacant or not. What matters is if the conditions the building and fire are presenting to you are tenable for you to be going in to do a interior fire attack and a primary search. And Denis and I are both going, I want to talk. Okay. I, I would make a distinction between vacant and derelict. Um, in some cities like Baltimore and Buffalo and quite a few other places around, there is a huge surplus of derelict buildings. Um, there's not a, a few vacant buildings as a, you know, a single digit percentage of buildings in the cities. In these cities, there are like significant numbers, like some in some cases approaching one in five buildings on a block, sometimes even more. And these buildings are significantly derelict. They're vacant, but they've been vacant for a significant amount of time. And I agree with Doug, there is a very good chance that there might be squatters in those buildings. Um, that's a possibility, there's no doubt about that. And you're right, fires don't start by themselves when there's uh, no electricity to the building, there's no gas to the building, uh, there's no reasonable um, reason why it might be caused, except you know you can still have lightning and you can have other issues, but you can also have um, fires caused by vandalism and by insurance fraud. That can happen also. And also by owners and others just wanting the building gone. They just don't want it there. They don't want to look at it. Or they may wish to redevelop the property. So they can be arson fires. Sure. And arsonists might be inside the building is my point. Like, Yeah. I, I have a lot of sympathy for arsonists that are still inside their building. 
And uh, well, it's not our job to de to determine who's who's worth saving and who's not. Yeah, I, it's 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 a difficult call. I agree with you. the The best system is for you to know all of your buildings in your district, so that you know which ones are derelict and unsafe, and which ones are merely vacant and and possibility of people being inside. So it's a tough call. Yeah, but the, and and we're getting it wrong when we're killing fire. The, the, that's, that's right. We're getting it wrong. But go back to two thousand and seven. They trained the firefighters to go past the fire. There's no search, excuse for that to one. go above the fire. This memo and the, this memo and the, is not about two thousand seven though. Yes, it is. Talking, it's about no, the, this memo is about the fires they've had recently. I just talked about this with my friends who are in the mining industry yesterday at at breakfast we we talked about this uh, you know and we said the how do we get employees to follow policy how do we get people to follow procedures that we're supposed to to make to keep them safe to not do silly things not do uh, not make mistakes and the only way to do it is stuff like these memos in 2007 they taught people to go beyond the fire and fight the fire without a water supply they had a hose line but um, they might not even had a hose line but they didn't have adequate water to put the fire out if the building got going in in 2014 the safety officer went in the building alone that was still full of smoke and walked in and fell in the in the basement. Was he even logged in on the accountability system? You've got to ask that. That's a question. And then in 2022, Stricker Street, the captain of the first end truck or engine cut the plywood off the front door to go in. Now, yes, it was arson most likely in that abandoned building that had had a fire before and the roof was through uh, at the time. They didn't know that it wasn't in the systems which it should have been they should have been identified but they, if you're cutting the plywood off the door and going in just in case someone's in there and the fire's coming out uh now they did knock it back the fire was really fierce and they, they hit it with a line and that's i think what caused them to go in because it, the fire did back off and then they got caught because right away the fire grew which is why they're writing a memo so we got to stop killing people here and why there's a need for situational awareness do your 360 uh, for people getting into the building, it should be relatively obvious where they're getting in. It's usually not on the front. It's somewhere in the back. Mm -hmm. I, I had, a, I had a, a derelict high school complex in one of, one of the places I was the fire chief. And uh, the kids were getting in and they were, they were filming, you know, snuff films and all kinds of other stuff. Not simulated, obviously. Doing all kinds of other things inside that building. And if you looked for it, you could see where they were getting in. And it was well known in the community that there were people in those buildings. But we had a major fire there, a major fire. We were, I already told you guys about this. We were there for a couple of days and uh, there was nobody in the building. And if there was, we never found them. Well, I'm still going to go back to my point about my problem with this memo is that it says if it's a vacant building, not a derelict building, not yeah. a abandoned for 15 years with six fires the previous building it says a vacant building yeah i think you have a point Doug. so why my is the new, is, new memo better is, it says the same thing my other is well i'm glad you brought that up paul because that's my next point is that it says you must wait for the first arriving battalion chief because that is not right you should not have to wait for the first chief to arrive before a captain who's a, or an officer, lieutenant or captain, who has proven they deserve to be in that spot and can make decisions 
they shouldn't have to wait for dad to arrive before they can go do their job. They should have the training to know, can I go in or not? I'm glad you said training, Doug. I think that's an ex excessively important point. You might have a captain who's been acting for a week. He acts two weeks of the year, three weeks of the year, you know, or shifts of the year. That's all he does. So he's, he's essentially a first-class firefighter and might not have received adequate training, might not even have adequate skills. And maybe that's what's behind this memo is something more specific to an understanding of their personnel. But in that situation, he's not the only officer there. He can defer. He can wait two seconds or one minute for the next arriving unit and not have to wait five or ten minutes for a chief that might be on the other side of his district. It also oh, says yeah. to the to the more experienced officer, they they kind of explained that it doesn't have to be a battalion chief, could be a more experienced officer. Yeah. Yeah. It says thus the senior yeah. officer or battalion chief in the second memo. Well, we're not yeah, talking so about the second memo but, yet. But remember, but I'm talking about my issues with the first memo that but, say the first arriving battalion chief. That was where my issue was with the memo. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. In Stricker Street, the big problem there was that uh, the 360 and command not being there at first. And also in Boston and the one in San Francisco, those were all issues where command wasn't in control of the initial actions, which is, I think, kind of where they're going here. Is, is for, and training, that was a, a, a thing in Stricker Street, was they determined that officer training wasn't adequate. So right. you've got an officer training issue, and we can't change that tomorrow. In no. the meantime, now we lost another guy uh, and injured four others in this last one in October. Let's do this memo. Yeah, and, and we all know that when you arrive in an all-hands fire, when things are really popping, there are some things that go out the window that if you had more time, you would like to do. And one of those I would suggest on row housing is doing your 360 because mm -hmm. it's not that easy. Right. You have to get in through an adjacent unit and out the back or do the walk around. And it's not always possible. Sometimes you got to go through fences. Sometimes you can't walk around. Well, so, you know, when we it's, did, it's too far. You weren't here for the Stricker Street one, Denny, but the uh, the SOP, if I remember right, is that the second new units went to the rear. First due went to the front, yep. second due to the rear. And by radio, they, they talked about the conditions on the back. Yeah. Dirk? I'm just very quiet because of my voice. <laughs> and I, I agree with Doug on, on most things. Don't tell him that. Oh, shit, he's listening. Um, <laughs> no, it's uh, the second memo definitely. The first one was not great uh, from a uh, serving the public point of view and from a command point of view. Um, the second one, I think, yeah. I think we can all agree that that's definitely the better one. And uh, as, as, as chief officers and officers, we definitely have to uh, make sure that our people are safe, right? That's our first priority. So training is important. Experience is important. Um, yeah, where you get experience from when you don't have fires. <laughs> and uh, what's adequate training? That, that's the other thing, right? Uh, we could talk about that.
The other, I mean, I have one more issue with the first memo and where it says that the only time you can deviate from this is when you see somebody in the building. So if you show up and someone says, my friend's in there, my brother, my kid, my whoever, they're in there, they're in there. You have to say, well, I don't see them, so I have to wait for the chief to get here to say I can go in. That's and, taking and... that's taking the job of a firefighter completely out of those company officers' hands. Yeah, they, they did rewrite that part, and they say if there's a credible report of a trapped individual with survivable yeah. spaces. So we can go to the second memo now, which basically addresses all the issues I have with the first memo. And I won't complain too much about the second one because I don't have much to say about it. I can say something about it. The term survival of a space, what's the definition for that? Is it searchable or is it survival? Is it, is it survival for the civilian with no protective gear or is it searchable for firefighters to go in and pull somebody out safely that and may or may not be surviving that fire? That's a training thing again. That's ULSFRI and blue card is a person without protective gear could be alive or savable. So they're not in the room where the fire's venting out uh, of, uh, you know, they're in another room where fire's not venting out or they're in another area of the building is what they're looking at here. Right. But, but we all know that, that the skills in the fire service are sometimes not what they should be. How many times have you listened to radio calls and you hear the first arriving saying, we have a fully involved structure fire when they don't. They've got flames showing from second floor windows that is not fully involved. There's all kinds of survivable spaces. That, that, so that's probably, that's language, all part of the problem. That's the problem of the language we're using because there's terms for the same, different terms for the same thing or the same term for different things. Like everything has a different meaning in different parts of the country. And I think that that's a problem. And as a department, I think you have to make really sure that what is the definition of survival? What is the definition of fully involved, yeah. if you ever use that term? Well, that, they, they kind of did that with the second memo. The first memo just says, if you're arriving on scene of a well-involved structure fire. In the second memo, it defines well-involved structure fire as... The fire has spread throughout the majority of the building or structure, one of the, of the highest intensity. Uh, these types of fires are well advanced without any occupant survivable space and where structural integrity is compromised. So they're Which, telling you, if you see this, that's what we're talking about here. They're taking out the, well, what does well-involved mean? What's well-involved to right. you versus well-involved to me? It, which they're, is they're, which is we, we saw that in Stricker Street because they had the video footages and it was what you would determine as a well-involved structure fire. And I'm assuming that the other one was the same, the, uh, the one in October. We have no reports yet, just the audio. So one of the issues there, again, is back to training. And, and one of the things that, that, that they teach you, or they should be teaching you as an incident commander or the officer on the first in truck doing your reports and you know your arrival report be accurate Get your situational awareness, understand what's going on. And some of the fundamentals are, where's the fire? And where's it going? And that will tell you an awful lot about survival spaces, survivable spaces, and whether there are any, and also whether your own folks are going to be in danger. 
So that's all part of it. Like we talked. Sometimes it's, it's not that easy to know these, but experience does help a bit. Like we talked about before we turned the recording on, that's exactly what Slicer says. What's the fu- Where's the fire? What's the flow path? Can we stop the control of the fire before? And then if there's an opportunity to rescue or ventilate or anything else, salvage, we do it. But the first, you know, thing is what is the, what is the, where's the fire? What's the flow path? And that's where people keep, I mean, that's why ULFSRI and these other are investing millions of dollars in trying to scientifically prove and then educate firefighters across North America as to how not to get hurt, how not to be injured in a fire. Why we do the podcast is to learn about this stuff. And so that's the part I like about this memo. It's a shame they have to do it uh, to educate their firefighters. But someone stood up and said, we got to stop this. How are we going to do it? Just for those who don't remember Slicers or who have never learned it, I'm going to read you um, what it stands for. And this is from Firefighter Nation. So it may not, it's not universal. Sometimes there's some small changes in language. But basically, Slicers, size up. That's the S. Locate, L, identify and control the fire path. In other words, where's the fire going? Where are the hot gases going? C for cool the heated space. And then E for extinguish, R for rescue, and S for salvage. So that's basically for engine company ops. So that's slicers. Size up. And nowhere in there does it say you have to do anything from the outside, Paul. No, You're right. no, but cooling, you know, there are different tactics there, right, Doug? Well, I, I get that, but I think there's a huge drive in our fire service right now that every structure fire you come to, you have to hit it hard from the yard before you go in. Because... People, hang on, Paul. People stop reading the paragraph when they get to that point. What they don't know is it only matters if you can hit it hard from the yard and then immediately a different crew go in. If you're hitting a hole right. from the yard and then you have to walk around and go find the door and go do this and stretch on the line and then go in, you've done nothing but waste time. Yeah, the ULSFRI studies show that that cooling from the outside is critical. Yes. You can the, buy time. The quit, you're buying time, exactly. And the studies all show that it's effective because if you don't cool it from the outside first, the people in that space are going to die and the conditions in the building are deteriorating. By the time you open the door and go in, you're going to have a bigger fire. So yes, but the time does need to be reduced as much as possible between those two actions. I know some of the nozzle forward and stuff like guys, hey, it's not worth doing it unless you can be there within 90 seconds or something. Well, it's still better than not doing it, in in my opinion. Yeah. But, but you got to know what you're there's, doing. There's, they're teaching, Paul, I mean, no offense, but you're old. When you learned how to do firefighting, you, you were taught to never spray water into smoke. Go find the fire and then put the fire out. Now they're all saying cool as you advance. So you're cooling all those compartments from inside as you're advancing to them. Instead of cooling from outside and then running around to the door and letting the fire get back to exactly where it was before you get there. You're taking out the knock it down, let it build up again, and you're just going in and knocking it down and leaving it down. 
But Doug, all of this, you know, is is theory, right? There are tools in the toolbox. Sure. It's it's all got to be an experienced set of hands on the nozzle and in command to know when is enough, where's the right place, when you need to stop, when you need to advance, when you're in the flow path and you need to do something. It, you know, you can write all these techniques down, but really they're just tools I, I, and they've got to be leavened with experience and skill. I 100% right? agree. And I know that there are, there are yeah. fires that you do hit from the outside because you can't go in because there's too much fire. What I'm finding is there's a drive or a push or that people think every single fire, you have to hit it hard before you go in. You have to do transitional yeah. attack. And that's not yeah. true. You can just yeah. go in and put the fire out. Yeah, But, that, but you know typical, when they say every single, it's wrong. That's that's your typical approach from firefighters. Just show me one way. I just need one way. I don't want to yeah. know why and what. Just give me one way. And I hear this all the time. And it's just firefighting is not that simple. If you think it's that simple, then maybe look for a different job because it ain't, right? But that was the implication. And then UL, when they started there, uh, research 12 years ago um, with the governor's island experiment, um, they said, this is just step one. Don't come to conclusions. We're just trying out something here. And then they build on that. But people needed, or they use this as an excuse, or we finally have some science. And now everything, every fire has to be hit from the outside. And that's just not true. And they, they, I think UL down the road really emphasized that. But the message is still, like at some point, just people decide, oh, we'll not listen to it anymore, right? Well, the big problem is they're trying to set change the mindset of thousands and thousands of old firefighters who have always gone beyond the fire. They've gone in to do a search. Some other guys are doing a vent because the vent is going to cool it. I mean, guys, you can look at it today. Look at the the whatever street there fire in L.A. two years ago where they the commercial one. What's it called? What's the street? There's a great video on there. The, Boy. Boyd Street fire. I mean, what are they doing? And LA's still doing it today. They're venting the roof. Why are you venting the roof? There was another one recently here, Houston or someplace, they fell through the roof. And again, the question was, what the hell are you doing on the roof anyway? Well, it's going to cool the space. Well, no, in a modern fire, it's not going to cool the space. They've proven it in ULFSRI. It makes the fire burn hotter. And your guys are now getting roasted because you created a flow path. So I think UL's trying to change the mindset with starting with governor's island and they're still trying to change it today and this is the problem large urban fire departments have is how do we change those tactics so that people know that there's different ways to open the box here we don't do it all the same like you just said dirk i think there's two camps here there's the ones that you said yeah it's the old guys that don't want to change but then there's the other camp that says we have to protect our firefighters no matter what we don't care about the public Safety, safety, safety first, right? Well, like, like and that, is that is that is those are the two camps that are fighting, right? I don't ever want to flow water from the outside, and the other guy says you're always going to flow water from the outside. We are not going to go inside, and look those at, are the two camps, right? Look at what Brunicini said. If you think training's expensive, wait till you lose a guy, right? And how many guys dead in Phoenix lately? Oops, none. Why? But, because they've adopted but, these practices. Yeah. But that's the thing. See, this is not your granddad's fire anymore. Right. 
It's not even your dad's fire anymore. Stuff has changed. And training is the key. We need to be training. We also need to have multiple tactics in our toolbox, and we need to be willing to try them for a few seconds if that's all it takes to find out that it's not right, and move on to the next one. If you can't train your all your officers and your and your right. battalion chiefs, what do you do? You write a memo right. and say, guys, from now on, this is our restrictions because we're not going to have any more guys. This is the same as the chief in Worcester, Worcester saying no more people are going into the cold storage building. He's standing in front of the door and said enough is enough. Well, this is Baltimore administration saying enough is enough. We have to put a stop to this. We can't lose more guys because the our officers don't have the experience, the skill to size it up properly. We don't have the memos that are flying behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah. And there's lots well, of those, I'm sure. My issue with this whole thing, Paul, was the words in the first memo. First memo, yeah. yeah. When things got fixed and the revised memo came out, then it made way more sense. And it came down to, like, don't be an idiot and go into fires that you shouldn't be going into. Agreed. And it explained Agreed. a little bit more about these are the fires that you shouldn't go into. Where the first memo that got my back up, if whatever you want to say, basically took all the decision-making out of company officers, wouldn't let the fire department be the fire department, and said, let's just show up. We'll spray it from the outside. Who cares? It's vacant anyways. We don't care if somebody might be in there. Where the second memo allows the company officers to make the decision. But agreed, it's saying you have to do a 360. You have to knock down visible fire if you see it. You have to do a risk-reward analysis. But it took out the fact that you can't go in any vacant building. It took out the fact that you have to wait for the battalion chief to arrive. And it took out the fact that you can't go in if somebody tells you somebody's in there. Those are the things that I didn't like about the first one. And I don't think it was saying we don't care if there's anybody in there or not. Is that if you don't have proof there's someone in there, we're not going to risk your life. And but, but and you you fine tuned it, it now, which is good. It said proof was you had to see them. You see them, so yeah. If, yep. if I show up and you tell me, hey, my wife's in there, yeah, yeah, that's not proof enough. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's our job. And sorry to say, but our job has a little bit of risk involved. And when somebody says there's somebody in there, that's the time to take the risk. No, I'm not saying you go into every building and rage into an inferno. But Doug, but how do we control? Hang on. Calculated risks. Yes. Okay. We've talked about calculated risk before, and you and I and Dirk have had this debate about calculated risk. And you've both said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. My cancer risk is high, but that's okay. I'm a firefighter, and I knew that coming in. Yeah, but it still doesn't mean wear your turnout gear on the rooftop camp out. Because it's been proven your turnout gear is dangerous to you. Don't wear it all the time. Yeah, yes, it's a risk being a firefighter, but we don't need to make the risk worse. But we all agree that we are able to minimize these risks by still performing our job. Same yep. as Miami Dade went away from their clean cap initiative because it doesn't work. It doesn't right. serve the people. And that's the first part. That is the mission. We serve the people first. And then we come third. So yes, we can minimize that, but we shouldn't forget to what what the mission is. And um, when we start not believing the public that is standing in front of a burning house, 
then why are we responding to outside fire because somebody saw some smoke and we're setting a full fall first alarm there no everybody's uh, siren blazing risking traffic our lives in the traffic which is still the higher risk than actually such a fire uh, when we start, oh, we don't believe the people that are standing in front of a burning building, right? So, and, and, and it's true. And of course, guys, in case you didn't know it, I mean, Doug and Dirk, you guys, we're not the average firefighter here. You guys, you're, you're however many years old, Dirk, and you're still going to nozzle forward and working hard to be on top of your game. And unfortunately, that's not the average firefighter in North America. And that's why we do the podcast to try to help people learn, you know, how to be better, because you're right. If you're not, if you're not studying it all the time and becoming an expert at it, you're going to get hurt. But how do we get everybody to be engaged, to be experts at the job? Well, one of the things that we, sh we should never forget is, is be behind every OP or OG or standing order like this, like this memo, there's everybody who reads this or every firefighter practitioner who, who reads these things and goes to these incidents really has to understand what's behind the OG, what's behind the memo, understand the reasoning for it, and understand when the situation is not as was envisioned when it was written. In other words, the exception. In other words, an OG is an operating guideline and you can deviate from it. You need to know why you've deviated. You need to have the proper reasoning. In other words, you need to have the experience and the knowledge and the applicability of skills, the KSAs. You need to have that in order to make a decision that's different from the memo. The problem with memos, and I, and I get Doug's point, is when you read the memo and you say, ah, we got a hard line, follow exactly what the memo says. We throw all of our KSAs out the window because the memo says well, you won't, you don't. That's problematic. However, if your firefighting force and the people that are actually the practitioners going to the fires don't have the background that they need to understand what's behind the memo, understand what's killing their firefighters, and understand when it makes sense to deviate because you're sure there's somebody in there because you can believe the, the reports you've got and you believe that you can do the job you know, within your risk envelope, then there's a problem if you don't know those things. And I'll, I'll relate something that I just saw on a firefighter's forum. I won't say where it was, but there was somebody who posted anonymous, anonymously. And uh, that was a good thing because the question they asked was, well, I've completed my firefighter level one and I'm looking at the, the uh, JPRs, the, 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 uh, the, the next task for firefighter level two. And I don't think it's worth taking that. It says, it just looks to be all administrative to me. Why would I bother? And I'm thinking to myself, there's the door, buddy. It's not what I typed in. I says, man, never pass up a training opportunity. You need those skills, particularly if you want to get on further. You want to take officers later. You want to know what you're doing. You think there's nothing there. There's way more there. That's just really a syllabus for what you need to continue learning to the rest of your career. But really, if that's what you think, you're not in the right job. You shouldn't be thinking that way. It's time to leave. So basically what, what Baltimore did, they cut out the work for the training academy because now they have to educate not just the memo because again the memo guys read it or don't read it follow it or don't follow it so there has to be a follow-up throughout the whole department and explain what is survival what is 
you know, dilapidated waters. So that's that's uh, that's a lot of work for for a big department, right? Yes. Same as same as Charleston, exactly the same thing. It was a culture as well as as equipment and training and everything. How do you change it all? Now, how do you change Baltimore or whatever department you put your name there? Look at Newark. Okay. How do we, you know, there's, there's going to be a memo in Newark. They're already talking about a training academy and stuff. The one or two battalion chiefs that tried to go to shipboard firefighter training got told, yeah, you can, but we're not paying for it. And it's on your own time. It's like, uh, hello, these ships are in Newark and they're paying taxes. Uh, nope, not on my watch. We can't afford it, right? I mean, and there's, there's, uh, we could probably go through. There's so many of these. There's, uh, there's a little bit of difference between the Charleston fire, the Newark fire, and these Baltimore fires in the sense that Charleston was a ship fire. Doesn't happen very often. Low frequency. High risk. The mm-hmm. Sulfur fire was a major commercial structure fire. Yep. Not yep. very common. Yeah. Baltimore is 50% vacant buildings. They go to lots of vacant building fires and they probably do a really good job and make grabs at lots of them. This is their quote unquote bread and butter. Some went really wrong and people died. The training one, that's kind of inexcusable. Like we talked training is you have the control, the, the safety officer, you can write all day about mistakes made there but the ones where they respond to a building fire and and things went wrong i'm not saying that that's okay and i'm okay with firefighters dying but baltimore goes to those fires every single day and people don't die those ones things went wrong and and i've been walking the work lately listening to our show the ones that i've missed and and then I, I kind of, in my mind, I'm walking, I corresponded it to the Oilers playing shitty this year, where it's not one thing that goes wrong that leads to an LODD. It's not one thing that goes wrong to the Oilers losing 7-1. to one. There's multiple things that happen that go wrong, and then it's too, it's too much to handle, right? You can handle a big fire. You can handle a collapse. It's hard to handle a big fire that collapses on firefighters. That's a lot to handle. So when we talk about doing this thing on Baltimore, I just, I want in my mind, I made a point that Baltimore is not a bad fire department. They go to these calls all the time. They put them out all the time. They probably go to multiple. I looked at some runs from like 2017. Some of their engines and ladders are going to 5,000 calls a year. They're going to vacant building fires lots and doing a really good job at lots of them. Doug. In my and I wrote it in the chat, but the problem with the five thousand runs, the problem with going to a sofa store with a booster line or an inch and a half, the problem with going into a ship when you don't know what you're doing, the problem with the fire truck driving on the runway in Lima, Peru, it's all complacency by senior staff. This is complacency. We're not using our expert skills. It's the same. That's that's why I teach incident command. The biggest risk is that if you don't have enough of an organization to manage the what ifs, which you just listed, what if the fire gets too big? What if something happens? What if the roof collapses? What if the fire truck quits working? What if Paul has a heart attack? If you're not set to deal with that because you never have to, all those 5,000 runs, they all went well, uh, you know, then you're not prepared to deal with it. And how do we fight that complacency all the time? 
because that's the that's the common thread here uh is complacency and and what dirk said is you know if you you have and whoever i have brunacini or somebody said you know this is a job you, you can't train too much for a job that's going to kill you right um and it's true that's why you guys are still training. that was me yeah i made it up <laughs> but i mean yes you can't train too much but in a city like baltimore it's hard to train a thousand mm. firefighters a year with 30 engine companies because yes, we would love to just do all the training we can, but it costs money. Cities need money to pay for it. Are you going to, are you going to do it in service out of service? So you, are you going to pay people overtime? You can go take a shipboard course. Well, the Newark fire department is not small. You can't send one or two people because then they have to be at work the day the ship happens. And, to send them all, it, like the cities, no, and I don't no, think New York's a very rich city. Like, like Buffalo, yeah. I don't think, so, like, it, it's easy for us as firefighters to say, oh, we should do this, we should do that, I should go here, I should go there. But who, somebody has to pay for it. I mean, personally, I'd love to go to tons of fire courses, but I have a budget, I can't go to them all. The money after Charleston was no longer an object. Yeah, it's, it's, I understand that it costs more for bigger departments to go training, but proportionally per firefighter, it does not cost more. It costs the same. A city of 50,000, you know, with 30 firefighters or a city of 500,000 with 300 firefighters, the cost per firefighter is the same if you're doing the same level of training. In fact, it should get cheaper with sure, bigger departments because my- you... My, my volunteer fire department, when I was on, sent two to four people a year to FDIC. The career of the fire department I'm on right now is not going to send 400 people a year to FDIC. It no. just can't be There's done. ways to spend your money wisely and get the biggest bang. There's no doubt about it. But your small career, excuse me, your small volunteer fire department did not have its own training academy. Did not have... Sure, and and, and yeah. I, I can't speak for Baltimore, but lots of places. But you still have thirty stations times four shifts, and only so yeah. much time in a year to do all the things you have to do. And there's vehicle operations training, and medical training, and river yeah. rescue training, and high rise training, and wildland training, and it, it it just keeps going on. And then before you know it, you're back to square one, and the new yeah. year's here, and you got to do it all over again. So I get I get why things don't always happen like we see. You can also compare, you know, level of service. And we have some cities that put four people on an aerial and have enough coverage for stations and stuff like that. Other cities that don't staff that much, you know, maybe their training's better, but then they don't have the staffing on the units or their or their runs are too long. I mean, so some administrations might waste money. I'll throw a firecracker into the mix here. I mean, you can go buy an electric fire truck and pay double what it costs you for a regular fire truck. Is that a wise a wise cost, right? Uh, or you could you could do. I had another example in my head. Now I forgot what it was. Uh, where you you spend money on stuff you don't need versus you know green fire halls. I'm going to make an eco friendly green no energy fire hall. Is that where I should spend my money? or should I spend it on training for my guys? Uh, those are all the issues that, that come up. I think one of the biggest, uh, I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but the socioeconomics plays a big role. We look at Detroit. Sure. Um, they, they have no money. They're bankrupt. So they have a whole bunch of vacant homes they cannot deal with. And I'm guessing Baltimore is exactly the same way. So 
that also means there's less taxpayers. That means there's less money for the fire department, for staffing, for training, all this stuff. So it's a it's a ripple effect that the 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 worse your economy is off, the worse your your uh, uh, your fire training, your fire staffing is going to be. But the increase in work is exponential, and that's where the risk is. So in the end, if we could blame anybody without saying that the firefighters did something wrong, but blame the city, blame, blame, blame city council, blame them. I don't know. Blame the fire chief, not stepping up for his guys because you need the money to train them and tear them down. Like Detroit. I mean, it's been just 15, 20 years now, but they're tearing down those vacant buildings and they have way less injured firefighters and, and uh, fatalities. Right. So step it up, Baltimore. That that's on you. That's what yeah, I would look, say. Look at look at Buffalo, New York. Okay, we had debates behind the scenes last year about the snowstorm and the inadequate equipment and stuff that Baltimore Fire had to deal with. I mean, and I was going on because I teach emergency management, right? I'm going, come on, guys, it's not like a, a snowstorm in Buffalo, New York, is a surprise. You should have snow cats, or you should have four wheel drive trucks, or you should have all this stuff. And you guys were kind of giving me the gears about that, but they still haven't hired an emergency manager in Baltimore. Council is dithering on hiring an emergency manager. I'm going, well, if you're this uh, Buffalo, I mean, if you're the city of the size of Buffalo and you don't have an emergency manager because you don't want to appoint one, well, you you know why they don't want to appoint one? Because the person's going to say, hey, we need to step it up. We need to do like Houston did after Harvey and we're buying a dozen high water trucks and we're buying this and we're buying that. But of course, that's what people don't want an emergency but manager for. Buffalo had all these that equipment. It just no, wasn't enough. No, they no, did. They, they had, had, they had, I showed you. They have. No, they had one skidoo. Yeah, exactly. One, what do you do with one skidoo? They well, have ninety percent of the of the time. It's enough. And no, I mean, we, we've done our due diligence, right? <laughs> not for an emergency. They had one four wheel drive truck. It was the crash truck at the airport. They only had one, and they were transporting people with a crash truck. They had side by sides. Truck. They had Cedu. One, one side by side. Come on, yeah. Leslieville, Alberta has one side by side for seven two hundred people. I that's mean, one department. That's crazy. Yeah, because in case they need it. Les, Leslieville, Alberta has a rural area, Paul. <laughs> they need it. Well, it's for every department, bit. you know, they have areas that they focus. And I would, I would think that Baltimore is re-examining their priorities now and they're refocusing. <clears throat> I know in, in one department that was in, you know, almost 50% of our calls, actually it was over 50% of our calls were, were medical assist calls. And we spent a pretty significant amount of our training time training for medicals. And if you, if you looked at the number of times where the intervention actually was life-saving, because we had a fairly good EMS system, um, that proportion was not that high. Uh, there were lots of times where it assisted with the quality of life for the patient. But what it did do is, of course, all that time spent on training and going to medical calls actually interfered with our ability to train for fire yep, protection. Yeah, for sure. And so it's a question of priorities again, and priority there was that. Cool. I said to the guys, we need to stop, wind this down soon. And Dirk told me to stop arguing. Okay. You guys are awesome. I just, Paul, do you want to mention blue card? You got your kickback. Well, I kicked him out. 
<laughs> but that was the answer to the Stricker Street fire because I, I passed it around with my incident command friends. Is it was the example of all the stuff not to do for incident command was the Stricker Street fire. Wait, Paul. And the Stricker Street ICS blue card or incident I'm command just, same thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Mentioned yeah. ICS blue card and slicers were complete. Well, we could talk about Brunacini's three <laughs> three main things. You know, risk a lot. For savable lives, risk a little. For yeah. savable property, risk nothing for stuff that's lost. Exactly. And then we can argue what's the definition of risk? Because it's different ah. for everybody, right? Ah. ah, yeah. But that should All be right. another demo talk, I think. <laughs> Great. Anyway, read the Phoenix Regional Standard Operating Procedures, and they define what risk is and what calculated manner is. And uh, Bruno's a great guy, had a lot of things. I don't know whether he invented that or just perfected the message. But uh, this is from the 80s, my friends. Blue Card Works. Listen to those uh, audio reports they put on their on their B-Shifter podcast uh, of the grabs and the, and the tactics and the stuff they do. It does work. It forces, it teaches your officers those responsibilities, how to communicate, how to size up, and how to make decisions. Exactly why we're talking about this. Anyway. I'm just waiting for the chat from Blue Card. Oh, they don't even listen to us yet, I don't think. Oh, but maybe one day. Doug, you're so cynical. <laughs> the emergency emergency traffic podcast old, brought to you. That'd be the first sponsor a, right there. <laughs> old man in a young man's body. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone, okay. for this great chat. Uh, hopefully our listeners enjoy it. And we will get together again soon. The next episode might be the Brackenridge with uh, Chief Routley from Montreal, who actually wrote the report on the fire in 1988, where four firefighters lost their lives. Be safe, everybody. Stay low and go. Sounds good. Yep.